This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Dr. Brian Chappell as he talks about why pastoral generations differ and unite. Dr. Chappell is the stated clerk of the Presbyterian Church in America. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2021 General Assembly. Let's listen as Dr. Chapel talks about pastoral generations. I might just prepare you a little bit by asking you to look at 2 Timothy 1 verses 1 through 7. You'll know it very well. 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 7. Paul, writing to a young pastor, says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, we're familiar with the words, and they're in some sense sweet sentiment to us. I mean, here you have grandparents and a senior elder in the church commissioning a young man for ministry, and there are lots of things that make us kind of go, aw, isn't, isn't that sweet, until you begin to say, this is really hard. I mean, after all, what the apostle is talking about is the will of God that fulfills the process by which the promise of life is carried on to generations. And when he describes it, he first speaks about a spiritual father-son relationship. To Timothy, my beloved child. Paul speaking as a spiritual father to a spiritual son. But he's not the first to have been involved in that relationship. He speaks, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors. Paul considers himself to be part of a continuing body of faith that is a church with both roots and reach. It was before him, and it is to go after him. He speaks, of course, not just of spiritual parenting, 
but biological, familial parenting. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and I'm sure dwells in you as well. Here is a, a grandparent to a grandchild and a parent to a child with the faith being carried on that way. But of course, it's not just biological. For this reason, I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, verse 6. There, though, Paul is referring to his own hands. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, you will recognize that Paul refers to that process of his laying on hands as part of a council of elders who commissioned Timothy by the laying on of hands. So there is a commissioning that is ecclesiastical of elders to those newly commissioned for leadership in the family of faith. And again, we say, isn't that sweet? Until you begin to consider how hard it is to be a multi-generational church. For people to understand one another when culture is changing, it may seem that their practices are changing while their faith is not. And surely the Apostle Paul recognized some of that, but some of the issues, of course, that are happening as a Christian faith comes into a Jewish and Greek world and all the changes are occurring from spiritual and biological parents to their children, we should have some sense of it ourselves with what we wrestle with too. Those who analyze us say that if you look back over the half century of what we struggle with as a church, not any mystery to you, we are experiencing, with the great transitions of generations, a loss of truth. What, what does that mean? Some of you who had experience with Francis Schaeffer said, we've gone from an idea of a transcendent capital T truth to a lower T truth. Everybody has their own truth. We speak in Oprah terms, right? You, you need to speak your truth, um, which is different than saying there is a transcendent truth that goes beyond culture and individuals. We say it easily and not recognize that if you were educated at any time in the last 30 to 50 years, everything you had in a secular school system was teaching you this is not real, this is. Your truth is what is true to you. In fact, even if you had a transcendent truth, it would not matter. In uh, the terms of existentialism and phenomenology, what? If I have a cat and you have a cat, my only experience with my cat is with my cat. Your experience is with your, so when I use the word cat, it's not what you think of. Even if we are using the same term, we think of different things. Our experience governs our truth. Truth does not govern our experience. It affects everything in our culture. We are suspicious of anybody who claims to have a transcendent truth. And that goes from everything from government. Does government speak truth or its truth with the party in power at the moment? Does science speak truth or is science in the hands of the corporation that supply the power and the marketing of its ideas? And so is the pandemic a hoax or is it real? Are vaccines good? or are they bad? Is climate change real, or is it not real? We don't trust science, government, education, art. There is no one to trust because the only truth we have is our own personal truth, and the idea is just to get along, not to try to impose your truth. And if somebody says, I have a transcendent truth, 
that is to govern marriage and morals and choice that is automatically assumed not just to be ignorant, but bigoted and the imposition of power of an oppressor. So right here with all our discussions of the present moment is critical race theory as well. What does critical race theory teach? What every critical theory teaches. It is not saying that systematic racism exists or doesn't, that is not critical race theory. It's a product of it. It is not what critical race theory is. All critical theory assumes you have some lens by which a minority in a majority culture needs to perceive the weaknesses of the majority culture, which by being a majority is automatically oppressive. And so you have critical race theory, critical gender theory, critical feminist theory, critical queer theory, where whatever is the lens that I'm looking through is a minority lens helping me to examine the majority culture. And any majority culture is by its very nature seeking to establish its truth as the capital T truth, which you won't see if you don't use the lens. But if you use the lens, you will see how the majority culture is necessarily asserting, some of you know the words of Jacques Derrida and Michael Foucault, asserting power and glory for its ideas. Because there is no transcendent, there's only this, but the majority culture will assert power and glory for its individual truth to impose it on the rest of culture. Which is why the assumption is, if you're the majority culture, you are automatically oppressive. Which is not necessarily a moral value, it's a fact of power and glory for your truth being put on others' truth. And any majority culture is presumed to be asserting power and glory of its ideas for a truth that is not transcendent, but has power in the moment. Well, what happens if all we have is truth that is power? and that is oppressive. Then we raise young people in the society that suspect that no institution has truth. It's just that they don't want to wear logo wear, right? That they don't want to represent any institution. But of course, they don't want to be represented by the church either. And so we are not just experiencing loss of truth, but clearly the loss of youth. So if we look at evangelical church at large in the United States, the most common way we kind of talk about this is when our young people raised in Bible-believing evangelical churches go off to college, two-thirds will stop attending church. So just kind of pick any evangelical denomination and you just kind of say, once they go off to college, once they're away from their parents' home, once they're away from the habits of the capital T culture to the practices of the lowercase t culture, there is no sense of continuing to be bound to an organization that will bind you and your freedom when nobody actually has truth that should be imposed on you. Now, not all of these young people will stay out of the church. One third will come back. When will they come back? When they start having kids. So one third will come back when they start having kids. Now, that's the common way we talk about it. It's not altogether realistic for some reasons that if you're pastors and ruling elders, you already know. This two-thirds will not have left the church just when they go off from high school to college or career. Many of them will already have left the church during their high school years because they will no longer be attending, even though they're in their parents' Bible-believing evangelical home, 
they will no longer be attending Sunday services. What will they be doing on Sunday? They will be doing sports. They will be doing Sunday work because that's where the jobs have been until recently with the pandemic and you know, all the search for young people. Get, notice how young your servers have gotten in the restaurants lately. <laughs> but we recognize they will either be doing Sunday work, they will be doing sports, or they will be doing more and more college prep. Okay, so the college prep courses are being offered on the Sunday afternoons or Sunday mornings as well. And so you recognize there's already been a major exodus. Most young people, if they make that lifetime decision for Christ, will make it between the ages of 14 and 18. So most people will, for a lifetime, make a faith decision, not everybody, but most people, between the ages of 14 and 18, which is the very time the church is allowing them and their parents, with permission, to actually exit the church before they've even left high school uh, by these other practices. That's kind of common parlance among us. We all know that. What we're experiencing in higher volume in the current moment is not just the loss of youth, but the loss of the mature. This has certainly been exacerbated by the pandemic, where we are told that something like 30% of the average membership of evangelical churches will not return. Now, that's just a guess. You know, people are guessing with that. But there is a sense of people get out of the habit. Uh, you know, my, my coffee in bed, Watching the preacher is sure a lot easier. And um, you recognize that's going to happen. Of course, a lot of churches will probably close as well. And uh, that's not altogether the reason for some of the loss of the mature. Some of the loss of the mature is because of loss of denominational ancestry, which will say even loss of denominational habits. Uh, two generations ago, if your parents were Lutheran, what would you be? Lutheran. Your parents were Baptists, what would you be? Now, here's a hard question. Uh, just by the nature of my job for the last few decades, always I'm in a lot of PCA churches. And it's common that you know, we'll have the joint adult Sunday school class, you know, because the ecclesiastical hierarchy is here. <laughs> so, you know, I'm supposed to explain the PCA to people. Um, I always ask the question how many of you adults, now again, if they're coming to Sunday school, these are the faithful. <laughs> How many of you were raised in a Bible-believing Presbyterian church? Now, just think of your own church, adults. How many of you were raised in a Bible-believing Presbyterian church? I will tell you, you go to the most historic PCA church you know, and the number will hardly ever, the percentage, hardly ever be more than 20%. Um, why do they come to our churches? Number one reason, they preach the Bible. Number one reason. Uh, and so if you say, if people are coming into our churches and they're not from PCA background, what backgrounds do they have? Number one group of people coming into the PCA, if they were not formerly Bible-believing Presbyterian, what were they likely to be? Southern Baptist or Baptist, right? Now, you may not know this. Second most high group of people coming into the PCA. If it's not Southern Baptist or Baptist, what's the second highest group? Roman Catholic. Why? We got tradition without the guilt. But it is tradition. And it is perceived as something that's got some solidness to it. And so we still have that. Now, what does not have solidness to it is the fact that, because we've got a lot of people from different denominations coming into our churches, they come with their expectations. Their music, 
their habits, their leadership views, how they are conducted in their past situation. And so we have all kinds of affinity groups that form in our churches. And if they leave our churches, they typically will not stay in PCA churches. If it does not have almost exactly the same kind of music and style of the church they just left. They will look for the style to which they've been accustomed, not for the theology to which they've been accustomed. By and large, our people know their politics far better than they know their theology. And they have music preference that's far stronger than their doctrinal preference. And so when they go searching and they come into our churches, there will be little denominational consistency. There will be little family consistency to hold the mature. So again, I'm speaking to pastors and elders, and here's what we deal with. We're just, at times, we're, we're just kind of shocked. I mean, it's not just the young people who left. Here's somebody who's been an elder for 15 years and reaches retirement age, and what happens? They're gone. You know, what are the, what are the phrases that pastors kind of inside go, oh, no? One phrase, pastor, great news. My child made the travel team. What did that person just say to you? See you later. I'm done. I'm gone. What's the other one? Pastor, great news. We got a lake house. See you later. We're done. Um, somebody's saying RV, if you can still get it. <laughs> um, there are other reasons. Divorce. Divorce is uh, almost as common uh, in our churches as any other place in the culture. Now, that's all debatable, right? You know, the big debate, are evangelicals really divorcing at the same rate as non-evangelicals? And um, almost every, you know, the common figure is 50% of us will get divorced over time. Uh, the major voice that's fighting that is focus on the family. So focus on the family, and their survey said it is not true that evangelicals get divorced at the rate of 50%. It's only 37%. Um, a lot of divorce occurs. When does divorce occur? Uh, we all know, should know, uh, divorce is most likely in years one to five of a marriage. Years one to five. Next most likely time, empty nest. Next most likely time, retirement. Uh, you know, we hung in there for the kids. Now the kids are gone. Um, we hung in there until, you know, habits changed and we had the affluence to live separately. Two-income households certainly make divorce more, more possible and have. And so we recognize that even if you say the number is 30% or 37% or 50%, whatever it is, you recognize marriage breakdown occurs, and when marriage breakdown occurs, people leave the church, right? It's hard for them to continue to be in your setting when the marriage has come undone. Their economic affluence also gives them opportunity not to stay with the church anymore. Um, we recognize that all the travel, all the affluence, uh, the extra things that people can do, all of these dynamics have an influence on the demographics of our churches these days throughout the country. So real quickly, um, I know this go faster than you can absorb, but you can listen to the tape perhaps later. Um, since World War II, the percentage of those identifying as Bible-believing evangelicals has basically not changed in the United States. You think, well, how could that be? There's so much secularization. But actually, of those calling themselves born-again evangelicals, the percentage only goes up or down a little bit 
every decade and basically has stayed the same. So if you say evangelical, that's roughly 30% of the American population. Roughly 30% of the American population identifies as evangelical. 30% of main, of, uh, is mainline Protestant, identifies as mainline Protestant. 20%, any guess? Roman Catholic. 20% Roman Catholic. Uh, beyond that, 15% uh, is, is all the other, everything from Mormon to Muslim to Hindu, Jehovah's Witnesses is the 15%. Um, in American culture, it is still not socially acceptable to be atheist, to not believe in God, and that's actually a, a very, unlike France, unlike Canada, uh, in the United States, very few people will actually say, uh, I don't believe in God. Now, the strangeness of this is to say I don't believe in God is one thing, but even these figures are highly deceptive. If you say evangelicals are 30% of the population, how many of those evangelicals are attending church regularly? Less than half. So less than 15% are attending church regularly. What does regular mean in your churches and an evangelical church? I attend church regularly. What does that mean? Most common, most average, three out of eight. So it's less than half the time. Three out of eight times means how often I attend. Now, the consequence of that is when you say Roman Catholicism, and particularly the Northeast, sometimes it's known as a post-Catholic culture, right? So people still identify as Catholic, maybe go to Mass once a year, that sort of thing. So a post-Catholic culture. Mainline, you recognize uh, we're holding to church patterns and habits, but not much of faith. Even evangelicals, because only half still attend, and of that, most don't attend half the time of the remaining 50%, you have the consequence of the loss of truth, the loss of youth, and the loss of the mature, in the fact of, you've heard all this, the rise of the nuns. The rise of the nuns. So now identified as 25% of the American population arising from all of these groups, whose identification is, I'm spiritual, just not religious. I'm spiritual, just not religious. Which means, I believe in God, but not the church of my parents. Now, this number is so striking because it has gone up a little more than 1% per year every year since 2000. Gone up 1% per year every year since 2000. So people come to your church and they say, I remember when our church used to be full at Christmas Eve and people used to come, and you're kind of going, and implied message, you're doing a bad job. You know, or we would have more people. And not recognizing the, the, the ground has moved out from under uh, the church as the generation that's kind of established evangelicalism in this culture uh, was raised. Now, the, the figures are shocking, but they are helpful to explain things. Of those who call themselves evangelical, why they differ so little from the rest of culture. Because they are identifying as born again, but they're not attending regular faith practice of any sort, and if they do, it is less than half the time. So, what do we know? 
Abortion rates differ almost none at all for those who identify as evangelical. Pornography rates differ almost none at all for those who identify as evangelical. Um, alcohol use, and particularly drunkenness, is difficult because the rate of drunkenness goes up for people who are calling themselves born again. Some of that has to do with economic status, but the actual rate of drunkenness is higher among those who identify as born again. So we, we recognize that the label doesn't mean something. But here's something wonderful that Focus on the Family tells us. Of this 15% that's down here, if they're not just attending church three of eight times, if they are attending church, if that's the regular habit of the church, and it is the regular practice of family worship, that is, they pray, they have meals together, the most striking number that changes is this one. Instead of two-thirds of young people leaving the church when they leave high school, 90% will remain in church. 90% will remain in church if regular worship and prayer is part of homes and weekly practice over here. So we don't just kind of give up the ship and say it doesn't matter. We recognize there are huge influence upon young lives when families, church leaders, pay attention to young people. I'll say it again, most lifelong decisions for the faith are made between the ages of 14 and 18. By the way, how much credibility do you as parents have between when your children are between 14 and 18? So who has major influence on your children's lifetime decisions? The people in the, in the church who care for them. So the Pew Research says if four adults, if four adults will pay close attention to a young person in the church, four adults will pay close attention to a young, young person between the ages of 14 and 18, that person will be a faithful Christian for life because the church is an intergenerational church doing its job. And when we do it, it makes a strong difference. Let me uh, talk about why it still becomes so hard it's not just the facts that are against us. And you recognize the weight of culture that is against young people now, right? So much of the weight of culture is against young people who say, I'm going to be faithful to Jesus Christ. I'm going to follow him. And if they do, it's why we have young people who are so committed, are some of the best evangelists we've ever had. Because, how do I say this? You know, when you're a Sunday school boy like me, and, you know, you're working with people who start to swear and cuss and say they don't believe in God, I'm Whoa, I can't deal with this. Whereas our kids deal with it all the time. And they've made a decision for Christ. And they're far more willing to have lunch, have coffee, play in the ball games with people who are not Christian than candidly their adult Christian parents are. Best evangelists we've ever had relationally, though they may not be able to use the EE plan. Saying they don't use the EE plan sets up the next thing. And Matt, could I use you now to turn this around? Um, I want to talk about some of the things that make it hard for us, not just to deal with the next generation um, that are in our churches, but the next generation of pastors and leaders as well. I spend a lot of my uh, time trying to help uh, generations understand one another, thank you, Matt, who are uh, in leadership in the church and recognize some of the struggles. 
And one way of thinking about that is recognizing the difference, whether you're a, a, a ruling elder or a teaching elder, the difference in perspective for people who hold to the same confession, believe the Bible, are in the same church, but have a very different perspective of what the world is like and how it's to be reached for Christ. So the, these are in some ways caricatures and stereotypes. I'm just going to tell you that straight out, but try to have some understanding of difference of other people. To take the difference between those who are 50 plus and their background and experience and perspective and those who are 40 and below. And you say, well, there's a gap in there. I know. Because there's not, a, there's not a strict line, right? It's not like everybody's this way or everybody's that way. You know, there's a spectrum. But what do we tend to recognize? If you are 50 and above, in your upbringing, in your school, and your church, you were raised with the perspective that you were in a majority Christian culture. Your, your, your friends were Christian. Your church was Christian. The people at school went to Christian churches. Everybody called themselves Christian. I was raised in a Christian culture. Now, as you were reaching your adult years and into your adult years, you began to recognize that even though people called themselves Christians, there were major earthquakes happening to the values of United States American culture. And so there were certain political as well as religious movements that tried to identify how the majority who were Christian would take control of the culture that was eroding, where the earthquakes that were shifting. How do we take control? And so the goal was to organize the churches and the political parties in such a way that the moral majority would be able to take control of the erosion that was going on. And the goal so often was to identify the error, the erosion, the problem in culture, and to make it stop. Because if we would just kind of motivate the majority, then, then, then we could keep that from happening. And there was one issue above all other issues that galvanized the church to seek to take control of the culture in such a way that we could stop the erosion of our culture that was going on. What was the issue above all issues that united us? It was abortion, you already know. So, you know, when, when Jerry Falwell uh, somehow united with Criswell in, in a movement that you're kind of going, how did that happen? These people have not been together and now suddenly they're together. And Pat Robertson and Jim Kennedy and how all these people, you know, these are different denominations and they are in competition. How are they all speaking the same language? Uh, they were galvanized by the issue of abortion. And you recognize that's, of course, not the only issue that was going on and that would galvanize culture. Other things that would happen after abortion, uh, you know, kind of became political and, and uh, religious at the same time. You know, we, we stood on picket lines. We walked outside abortion clinics. We set up um, clinics to help moms so that they could keep their children. I mean, so much was done in healthy and strong ways, but it was to stop the abortion. What was the second major issue? If it wasn't to stop abortion, it was to stop what? The homosexual movement. And uh, to recognize that that itself was 
part of the loosening of society and the coarsening of society on its sexual issues. Uh, affecting our young people strongly was the need to stop pornography. Anybody remember Donald Wildman and the National Federation for Decency and how strong that movement was for a while? Now, pornography's influence, you well know, has not gone away. By the way, it's driving the transgender movement, particularly for young women. Uh, we, we look at transgender movement as primarily influencing young adults, far more persuasive and powerful among adolescent women. You know why? Because they see sex portrayed in evil, violent, vile ways and say, I want nothing to do with that. I must not be a woman, nor do I want to be perceived as a woman. And so what happens? You get what's known as the adolescent contagion, and so you have entire schools where 15 to 30% of young women are identifying as transgender. Why? Because they want no part of what they are perceiving. It's not just men who are affected. Um, other things that were coming across the culture that we need to stop, illegal drugs, with all the influence upon young people and culture. We don't talk about it much anymore, but do you remember when all the stopping of the casinos movements were going on? And we tried to mobilize the churches and we tried to mobilize them in devoting movements to stop the gambling that was occurring. Um, we may tease about it, but we also wanted to stop the tree huggers and anything that carried the liberal lane, right? Anything that had, you know, was identified as liberal was allowing the other things to come into society and had to be stopped. What else was coming into society and had to be stopped? Illegal immigration. Not only were people operating illegally, there was a sense of taking jobs away. And if you look at born-again evangelicals, they primarily are not those who are making the most money in society. And so this was perceived as a, a strong threat to those who are identified as evangelicals, and we organized to stop it in various ways. Uh, late to the game, in terms of the agenda of those who wanted to stop things, and primarily through the promise keepers in the 1990s, was the issue of race. And it was to stop racism, but the term that we used was racial reconciliation. Not to stop it, but to encourage it. Racial reconciliation. Does it look like a familiar list? So if you're 50 and above, everybody knew what uniform you were supposed to put on, right? If you're going to be a faithful church, if you're going to speak to the issues of the day, if you're going to do what you're supposed to do, you are supposed to address these issues. And if you would not address these issues, you are not being faithful as a church, nor as a pastor, nor as, a, nor as an elder, if you're not making sure your church is on the right side of these issues. So they dominated us a lot. Now, what's the problem? Well, you take this generation, 40 and below. Now, what did I say about this generation? If you're 15 above, you perceive what is the majority culture. Everybody was, everybody's a Christian. And so you're, you're just raised with the perception of, I'm a Christian in a majority Christian culture. And that's why we have to associate with the moral majority to, to stop the bad things that are happening. If you are below 40, never in your life, never in your life did you perceive yourself as a majority 
in a majority Christian culture. You perceived yourself as a what? A minority in a pluralistic pagan or secular culture. All your life, at no time in your life, did you perceive yourself as part of a majority. Now, if that's the case, and you are one of these committed Christian young people who's becoming a, a young elder or a young pastor, um, you say, you know, my goal, if I'm going to reach the culture, if I'm going to have Christ-influenced culture, which we feel like is our necessity for mission and for witness, then my main goal is not to take control, it's to make credible. It's to make credible the faith. How do I make credible the faith? Well, this is where the tension starts, where you're going to start to feel the ouch, okay? Because a lot of young pastors do not like what C. Everett Koop, do you remember C. Everett Koop? What he talked about the shrill voices of the anti-abortionist who were turning people away from the church. So young pastors, what do they talk about? Not about stopping abortion, but promoting what? Adoption. How do we save lives? Adoption and foster care. So um, before this strange rocks in my head thing of uh, allowing myself to come to the state clerk's office, I was pastoring a church in the Midwest in central Illinois. So we're a church of 2,000, 2,300 people or so. And I would tell you, if you look at our demographics, it would just be this. You'd say, if you look at 16 above, we are 98% Anglo. But if you look at age 15 and down, we are only 50% Anglo. What else are we? We are children of color. Why are we children of color? In part, because we've talked so much about all generations and all peoples, and we're in a town where Caterpillar Tractor hires engineers, and uh, the hospitals hire uh, doctors from all over the world. So we've got lots of people of color in our community coming in, but it's primarily families adopting and doing foster care that has absolutely changed the demographic of our young people. So Christmas programs, you know, we have all the young people up on stage, and you've got, you know, several hundred young people up there. What do we have? Uh, we have 50% we have or more who are people of color. As the demographics are changing, because of families who, I'll tell you honestly, will probably never get on a picket line and are doing everything they can to preserve life. But they don't have the same sermons, and that creates problems with a generation that's expecting a certain message and a generation that's living another message. Homosexual. This says we need to stop the homosexual agenda, and of course it became more activist and became more uh, vocal and more difficult for evangelicals. But if you want to make credible to the faith a community that you think is going to reject the faith, what do young pastors talk about at time? AIDS, care, and missional conversation. How do I explain my faith to people who I think who they think I hate them. How, how will I get the faith to them? And so the conversation varies and the teaching varies. Are you uncomfortable yet? Pornography. The issue is not so much if you listen to so many young pastors who are dealing with men and women and young people and families struggling with pornography. 
The issue is not so much we need to stop the pornographers and stop all the bad people who are looking at pornography. Not even we need to stop the young men from doing all the bad. What, what are the conversations far more about? They are far more about sexual slavery and victim rescue. Do you really care about people? Then what does viewing pornography do to enslave others? And so we talk more a lot about enslavement of the victims rather than our enslavement to the addiction. Now, I'm not saying there are not all kinds of addiction groups there, but I'm saying the conversation changes if I'm trying to make the faith credible. In terms of illegal drugs, the opioid epidemic has entirely changed the conversation because we are not talking about you know, the down and outers who are doing drugs. Again, I'm assuming you all just have experienced what we know. I mean, we, we have lost attorneys and doctors and brokers to death to opioid addiction in a major affluent church. And you recognize that so much uh, of our discussion about illegal drugs has uh, now moved uh, to, to all the questions about intervention and care and, um, and provision for those who are addicted as well. Same is true about gambling. The conversation has moved some, I don't find many churches who are railing against gambling anymore, but what do young pastors and particularly youth leaders talk so much about? Not gambling, but gaming, right? So we have young men who got addicted to gaming while they were in high school. They go off to college and they don't even last a semester. Why? They can't turn it off, right? They stay up all night, gaming, gaming, gaming. So game boy becomes game adolescent, becomes game college student, which washes out. You know, I cannot, I can't, so we, we talk about how we handle gaming addictions uh, more and more. Instead of talking just about tree huggers being bad, you hear more and more about creation care. Uh, instead of just talking about illegal immigrants, refugee care, which depending on what presidential administration is in power becomes highly debatable in the church and uh, we, we wrestle and claw at one another. And racial reconciliation is on the agenda. Racial reconciliation, here's the difficulty. It moves from the eighth place to the first place. So young pastors do not see that as an issue on the bottom. They see it as the presenting sin of the evangelical church for not having dealt with. And therefore they have to deal with it. And we will deal with it in this assembly, and we will divide generationally, and we will divide ethnically about how seriously we see the problem. And so much of it deals with, this was late to the game for this generation. Promise Keepers and Movement got it on our table. For this generation, it is, it is the obvious non-example of the gospel being lived out, of not valuing other people. Now, if you want to feel the pain and feel the tension, um, ask people who their heroes are. Because this generation, if you say, who are your heroes? Who are the people who stood firm, stood for the faith? Well, it's clear. Uh, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, Jim Kennedy, and prime among all other names, Jim Dobson. You all are saying it. Jim Dobson. Whereas if you talk to this generation and you say, Jim Dobson, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, Jim Kennedy, they will say, 
they are not the heroes. They are the, they're the problem. And you have people, I can't, Jim Dobson's the problem? He rescued my kids. He taught me. How could you possibly believe that? Right? And, and so then you say, all right, over here, who are the heroes? Ed Stetzer, Russell Moore, Tim Keller. And this generation said, whoa, whoa, I, I always heard they were the compromisers. Now what happens? So a very dear man in my life said at one time, trying to explain his angst, and he said, I look at the young ministers who are coming up, his language is, they won't put on the uniform. We fought and died for these things. We put ourselves, our churches, our line, our faith, we, we put ourselves in the line for them, and they won't put on the uniform. And so this group who stood for these things points this way and says, coward, compromiser. And this group looks at this way and says, hypocrite, hard-hearted, and neither is true. But it's the way we deal with each other because we are not perceiving how we were raised, the context in which we are doing ministry, and the context in which we were raised to do ministry. And so we become suspicious and attacking of one another when we do not recognize what are the issues that we are having to deal with or even what the issues that we choose to deal with. I said I spend a lot of my time trying to help generations understand each other a little bit. And let me go right there and say, how do we get these people to, if not agree with each other, maybe to trust each other, maybe to try to work in mission together. There are certain things, though they may differ in priority, they are not differing in fundamental principle. What still holds in the PCA or evangelicalism as a whole, what still holds these groups together? One clear thing that holds these groups together is Respect for life. Whether you're talking about stopping abortion, stopping homosexuality, or the ravages of pornography, you are talking about the dignity of every human life before God. And if you are talking about adoption and AIDS care, even for those who have lived sinful lifestyles, when you're talking about sexual slavery that we try to get away from, when you, you are talking about still deep and profound belief in the imago dei, in the sanctity of life, in the dignity of every human, and, and we agree on those things. What else do we agree on? We agree that the Bible is to be our guide. Where do I get the idea that I am to rescue those being taken to death? That's in the Bible. And whether I think that means I need to do picket line or I need to take a child into my home. It is the, the priority value that's still driving the action. And it's the, the value of what the Bible says should be what is our authority for life and godliness. Finally, I would say what is driving us on either side of this is that we have to think beyond ourselves. Each of these groups think, I have a mission in the world that there, there is a corrosive culture that 
the prince of the power of the air is seeking to impose on this culture, and I have every duty and responsibility to oppose that for the sake and the name of Christ, those who are lost, those who are hurting, and those who need to know about him. These become very difficult conversations. Um, when I did this seminar in, in our church, um, one of the interesting things that happened after the people spoke to me in various tones at the end of the service <laughs> was two Sunday school classes of these generations decided to meet with each other for an entire year. Why don't we see things the same and why do we distrust each other? Why, why do we think you're not being faithful and you think we're not being faithful? And actually talk that way. And it has been extraordinarily helpful for them just to see, it, it, it's not that you weren't trying to be faithful. You were actually trying to express the gospel and the culture as you understood it. And we're trying to do the same. Now, I'm not saying that's come to agreement on everything. I am saying there may be some understanding of why these different perspectives have come. And so when we talk about being an intergenerational church, it's not enough just to say, isn't that sweet? We really need to say, that is really hard. That, that is really hard. But why is it important? Because if you're not an intergenerational church, you die. If you do not become an intergenerational church, you die. Worse than that, the word of Christ does not go forward from your church. So we are required by the scriptures, love of one another, life, word, and mission, to care for one another, to take the gospel as we understand it through the generations for the sake of those who need the Savior. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.